All right, so Corky said it was a little time for Christmas, so we heard a couple of Christmas songs. Uh, our Gloria in Excelsis Deo, test. What does that mean? Anybody know? Good. Glory to God in the highest. It's Latin. So as you're singing, you know you're singing glory to God in the highest. It's singing in Latin. It sounds really pretty, but as long as we know what we're saying, that's good. Um, I have another example, probably not nearly as spiritual. Uh, but what about, you know, Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen? Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen. But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? See, we know it, right? Not nearly as spiritual as any of those other songs, right? But boy, we know it. And we know who they are. It wasn't in Latin. But thinking about that, why was Rudolph the most famous reindeer of all? I like all you guys. I love. See, I talk with my hands too. You guys are like, this thing had the nose. He had the nose. So let me ask you this. If you took all those reindeer and you put them in a lineup, could you pick out Rudolph without asking who's Rudolph? Right. Why? Because the red nose. Now, if you let the reindeer mix up amongst each other, could you still pick out Rudolph? Yeah, why? Because that red nose, it stood out like a sore thumb. That red nose announced his coming and his going. That red nose drew attention from all people around. That red nose shined light on Rudolph. Man, I feel like I just built like this beautiful sand castle for you to look at. And you're like, ah, oh, and now I'm going to come and jump on it and destroy it. I'm sorry, just so you know. Rudolph, we're happy to talk about. But just like Rudolph's nose, you ready for the transition? Sorry, pride doesn't go unnoticed either. Ah, pride. Pride is seen by all. It attracts attention to itself. It shines the light on itself. It promotes itself. It announces its coming and its going. And pride is a problem. And we're going to see this morning from our text that pride is actually the root of all unbelief. Sorry about that. We started off so happy. Talking about these wonderful reindeer. God is happy to talk about it. Brought us back to our childhood. And then there the pastor goes and has to put in pride. I didn't put it there. Actually, the text will be returning to John as we study through the Gospel of John this morning. John chapter 7 is where we'll be at this morning, and that's what we're going to see. It is interesting as John has written this Gospel that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in his name, you might have life, eternal life in his name. That's the whole purpose of writing that. So over and over, as we have studied through the Gospel of John, we've seen him do all kinds of miracles, all kinds of signs to prove that he is truly God. But now we'll look at chapter 7, and we'll see pride being addressed. And we have to wonder why. Why would John all of a sudden address the issue of pride? Why would it be important for the readers, like us, to be addressed with the topic of pride? All of us here are like, I don't know. I don't have a pride issue. Maybe that guy or that gal, but not me. <laughs> right? It's like, that's that other person. But pride is a big deal. This morning, if you are taking notes, the title of our message is Pride, the Root of Unbelief. Pride, the Root of Unbelief. And we'll be studying John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. 
we're going to look at these verses a whole lot this morning. I'm actually going to read through them first, and then we're going to transverse through them, and then I'll point out three different things from the text this morning. So if you have a Bible this morning, please open up to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 this morning. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through these 24 verses. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. We'll cover that. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20, the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because of the Sabbath that I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would reveal yourself and your truth to us through the study of your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would teach us, that your spirit would draw us to yourself in complete humility. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so that was the whole context of where we're going this morning. We're going to break it up a little bit, go over it, and then I'll point out the three areas that we need to see this morning. Verses 1 and 2 open up the backdrop for us here. We see opening in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After this, now it's been a few weeks since we were in John chapter 6 and closed out John chapter 6, but that's where Jesus gave his discourse on being the bread of life. So it's after this. After he gave that discourse, it says he went into Galilee. But he says he would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Those of you that have been with us through the study of John or if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, back in chapter 5, 
Jesus healed a paralytic man. He had been an invalid for 38 years. And everybody saw the sign of this, but they were upset about one thing. Anybody remember what it was? It was the Sabbath. And how, how dare he do work on the Sabbath and heal somebody. And since that day, the Jewish leaders have been seeking to kill him. And they're still seeking to kill him. And it says he did not go to the area of Judea because he knew they were seeking to kill him there. And then John gives us the time of year it is. In verse 2, he says, Now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. All through this gospel, he gives us one of the different celebrations that the Jews would celebrate. They give us time frame. Here's what's interesting here. Before when he gave the discourse, it was at the Passover. Passover was in April. This is now a celebration that occurs in October. So six months have gone by. Now, John didn't record every single thing that Jesus did and said. He's writing for a purpose that we would believe that he is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. So he's given the time frame that after this, Jesus went to Galilee, and now the time frame is about six months later that this is now occurring. The Jews are still seeking to kill him. And here we have him presented by his brothers in verse 3. Jesus' own brothers. This is James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, also known as Jude. James, who wrote the epistle of James. Jude, who wrote the epistle of Jude. James, who would later become the head of the church in Jerusalem. These are his brothers. Born, or actually I should say half-brothers. He was born of Mary, but they were born of Joseph and Mary. And we see in verse 3, it says, So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Well, you know what? That sounds like pretty good advice to me. If you are who you say you are, go up, because this is one of the feasts that all the males were required to go to. It is one of the top three most popular feasts that they are going to, everybody's going to be there. Jesus, everybody will see you. It's time to go. Go do all that you're doing and do it in front of everybody so that the world might see it. You guys remember the last time when Jesus was teaching? He gave a discourse. He talked about eating of him and drinking of him. You remember what happened with all the disciples that were following him? John chapter 6, verse 66. They all took off. So now his brother's like, hey, you can go get them back. Go there. They're going to be there. Go show them openly who you are. To me, that sounds like pretty good advice. Here's what's interesting. Look at the very next verse. John is pointing out something very important here. He says in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Wait a minute. So what were they promoting? Why would they tell him to go do these things publicly? Think about it. Do you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? And do you remember the following day that all these people showed up? Why did they show up? Because of food. He was the miracle meal maker. They came to see the show and get the benefits. His brothers are in the same unbelief. Hey, you could do these things. Let's, let's put on the show. Attract the world. But didn't believe that he was the son of God. That's amazing to think of. I actually think verse 5 is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. Not even his brothers believed in him. I mean, how could that be? They saw him. They grew up with him. 
Surely there was something different. He looked the same. He was fully human. But at the same time, he lived a life without sin. When everybody else is hiding the cookie behind their back going, I didn't have a cookie. Jesus wasn't doing that. But they didn't believe. They saw his miracles. They knew his life inside and out. And we're going to look at their unbelief a little bit more later when we come back and dive into this point. But think about that. His brothers did not believe in him. Jesus, we see in verse 6 through 8, he responds to his brothers. And he says to them, my time has not yet come. Some of you that might ring a bell. Back in his first miracle at the wedding of Cana, when they ran out of wine, his mom came to him and said, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he goes, what does that have to do with me? Because my time has not yet come. Here he says it again. His time yet has not yet come. But he says, your time is always here. He's talking about living by a time frame. He is by a heavenly time frame. He is under the, submitted to the Father's time frame. They are living however they want, as, however they please, according to their own wisdom. He says, the world cannot hate you. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. He's talking about them going up to the feast. People are going to love you. You're just like them. But when I go there, they want to kill me because I testify the works are evil. He says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going to go to the feast. He says, for my time has not yet fully come. Now here's the confusion. Those of you that I read through the first time, some of you saw a transition. Jesus says, I'm not going to the feast. And then a verse later it says, Jesus went to the feast. Did he lie? Is Jesus being deceptive? Is he telling his brothers, go away, I'm not going, and now I'm going to sneak off? Actually, what he's saying when they're talking about it is, I'm not going up the way you want me to go up. I'm not going up in this public show to show everybody who I am. My time has not yet come. And if you look at the next verses, in verses 9 and 10, he goes in private. He doesn't take his disciples with him. He doesn't take anybody with him. He goes by himself. He says, after saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone to the feast, then he went, but not publicly. He went in private. Now imagine if he went with his entourage, a lot easier to spot him. A lot easier to be found. But instead, he's going to go in private. He's going to go for a purpose. Now, remember, the Jews were seeking to kill him. And we see that in the very next verse, verses 11 through 13. It says, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? We're speaking of the Jewish leaders, not just the people going, oh, where is he? They're looking to put him to death. And they're seeking him. And there were other people in the crowd. It says in verse 12, there was much muttering about him among the people. And some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. And yet nobody said anything because they were fearful of the Jews. I'm going to ask you a question this morning as we're just going, we're just covering over this text, flying over the surface of it. They said he was a good man. Some said he was a good man. Were they accurate? Oh, look, I got you stumped. You're afraid to answer. You're like, ah, is this a question? If you only think that Jesus was a good man, you have completely missed who Jesus is. He is God. He's not just a good man. These people, although it sounds like, oh, look, they're giving him credit that he's a good man, they are missing the point. 
He's not just a good man. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And then there's others who said, no, he's leading people astray. Same thing. They have an outward appearance of who he is. And Jesus is going to address this. We see in verse 14, Jesus doesn't stay private. He doesn't stay remote. It says at about the middle of the feast, the seven-day feast, or maybe somewhere on day three or day four, Jesus goes up into the temple. And he doesn't go to perform a miracle and do a sign or wonder. He goes to teach. And look, it says he began teaching. And he gets a response. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He's teaching better than the rabbis. Those who have all these years of studying, how can you do this? And they're marveling at him. Now here's another question for you, keeping you engaged. What did he teach? We don't know, right? It doesn't say. We, we have no idea. Some of you are like scratching your head going, ah, what's he teaching? It says he went up and he began to teach. And the whole point was he's pointing out the response. Now, we know he's teaching truth. We know he's teaching because he's the son of God. Whatever his message is, is from the Father. But we don't know exactly what he taught. We don't know what message he gave. We don't know he opened up the scroll of Isaiah and just started going. We don't know. But what we do know is it was purposeful. And it was to get a response that they would marvel at him. And say, how can this man teach in such a way? How could he teach with this authority and this learning? He's never even studied. And Jesus answers, verse 16. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. We're going to talk a lot about that when we come back and look at our points this morning. But he didn't take credit for it. He said, this is not mine. This is him who sent me. And he says in verse 17, he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will. You guys understand? That's a lot of wills. If your pursuit, if your desire, if your heart is in gear and tuned to God's will, he says, then you'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. He says in verse 18, he says, the one who speaks on his own authority speaks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Church, you got to understand, Jesus, although you'd think that he was, you know, he was meek, he was humble, but he was also direct. And he spoke in a manner that was also confrontational. He's speaking to Jewish religious leaders, and he's telling them, you guys, when you speak, you speak for your own glory. You speak to exalt yourself. You speak so others will think highly of you. That's not how I speak. I speak to exalt him who sent me. I seek to represent him and not myself. And then as that's not enough, digging at them in confrontation, he comes more direct at them in verse 19. and says, has not Moses given you the law? And look what he says about it. Remember, these are people that puff themselves up, pride themselves on keeping the law. He says, yet none of you keeps the law. How's that for making friends? It's direct. And it's direct intentionally. It's to perk up their ears. It's to cause a response. He says, why do you seek to kill me? And look at the best answer they can come up with. Look at the best thing that the crowd answers. You have a demon. That's the best thing they can come up with. 
It's like you're insane. You have a mental issue. There's something up with you. You must have a demon. That's all they can come up with. That's why they're seeking to kill him. And they said, but we're not seeking to kill you. Who's seeking to kill you? Isn't that just like someone wrapped up in themselves? Have no idea of the response to anything. Have no idea like Rudolph that has that big nose all shining, that they themselves are shining like that, that everything is evidence, that everybody around them sees the motive, and they themselves go, what? What are you talking about? That's what sin does. It hardens our heart. It clouds our judgment. And here they have no clue. And Jesus says in verse 21, he says, I did one work. He's speaking of healing this paralytic man on the Sabbath. And he says, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Stop there. When was a little Hebrew baby to be circumcised? On the eighth day. Do you think maybe some people had babies eight days before the Sabbath? Couldn't control that, right? So when the eighth day came, guess what? You circumcise the baby. It's the eighth day. Yet, isn't that doing work? It's a work. And they would say it was justified as a work that was good. And yet it was a work of, in a sense, mutilation for the body. And Jesus is going to say, look, I did just the opposite. He said in verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I'll close with that before we get to our points. Don't judge by appearances. These people were spiritually blind. They couldn't see any spiritual discernment of what was going around. All they could see was what was on the outside. And Jesus says, that's not how you're to judge. You need to judge with right judgment. And we're going to look at that this morning as we look at, again, pride, the root of unbelief. This morning we're going to look at two different groups that are presented to us. There are two groups in our text this morning that demonstrated unbelief. And both groups had pride as the core of their unbelief. The first group was Jesus' own brothers. Jesus' own brothers. We're going to see how pride was at the core of their unbelief. The second group we'll look at is obviously the Jewish religious leaders that we just spoke of. So if you're taking notes, there are three points we're going to look at in this text. Point number one is self-exaltation through association. Self-exaltation through association. Point number two will be self-exaltation through works. And to give us some hope through this all, point number three will be self-exaltation remedied. What do we do about it? So let's look at the first one. Self-exaltation through association. Going back to Jesus' brothers. Looking back to what they told Jesus in verse 3 through 5. They said, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. But we know they didn't believe in him. So it wasn't for any reason of people knowing that he's the savior of the world. They had some other motive. Why were they promoting him? What was the deal? Well, he's the greatest miracle worker of the day. And guess what? They're his brothers. Oh, you heard of Jesus? That's my brother. You hear, you hear people name dropping? Oh, you know, I know this, I know that guy. Well, I know Jesus. Think about that name dropping. Think about all the names you could drop. They were self-promoting, self-exalting themselves by the association of Jesus. Jesus, go get more famous. 
The more famous you become, we're going to ride on your coattail, and we're going to be famous too. Completely lost in unbelief. Their pride of wanting to promote themselves through association, they've lost who Jesus is. Their whole goal was self-exaltation. That I could be attached to something that people will, will chase after or people will know, and I can say, I know him. I know who he is. I like what John Piper said about this. John Piper said, pride at its core is the craving for human approval. Oh, I'll let you sit on that for a second. Pride at its core is the craving for human approval. Oh, you know Jesus? Well, let me know you. And let's get together and let's talk. And people do that all the time. Now let me ask, let's transfer this a couple of years, thousands of years later. Do you think this type of pride is demonstrated today in people? I heard of, oh yeah, oh yeah. Self-exaltation through association. You think that happens? You think some people might, well, I want people to think better of me. So I said, you know what, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I follow Jesus. I go to church. You know, and I know pastor so-and-so. And they start dropping names. But not because they truly know Jesus, but because they want people to think a certain thing about them. So around this crowd, I'm a super saint. I tell them all the Christianese I know. And around this crowd, I tell them I don't know who Jesus is because I want to fit in with them. You guys following me? Anything that promotes me, that gets approval of others, self-exaltation. This is what Jesus' brothers were all about. They were blinded by unbelief because they wanted to promote themselves. Here, years later, we still have people who want people to think I'm a good person. I'm not that person I'm trying to hide or, or trying to cover up those skeletons of the past, but I'm a good person. I go to church. I go to church and I, I meet with people and I know this person and that person. And the whole point is nothing to do with Jesus. It has to do about themselves. It's to promote themselves, to make them look good in front of others, to seek the approval of others. Is it possible the same people don't know Jesus at all? Absolutely. Jesus himself, and the end of the Sermon on the Mount, would say there would be those who would stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty miracles in your name and do all these other things? They could do a list of works. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you, worker of lawlessness. That's got to be one of the scariest things. I said that verse 5 is one of the most shocking verses. That is more shocking. That there are people who think that they were living, even calling him Lord, Lord. And he says, I, I don't know you. Depart from me. They weren't seeking after knowing Jesus or yet being known by Jesus. They were seeking out promoting themselves. What else can I add to me to make me look better? And that's what they were all about. There's another point about looking at his brothers. It is this. Familiarity is not faith. Familiarity is not faith. These guys grew up with him. They knew him. They saw everything about him. They were very familiar with Jesus. Yet they did not believe. And there are some people who think by associating being familiar with the tenets of the faith, I go to church, I read a Bible, I say a prayer, I give some money, whatever that, whatever that fits in there, they think, now I'm familiar with these things, so there must be genuine faith. His brothers did not have faith. That is not what faith is. We will look at what faith is this morning. But his brothers, self-exaltation, 
was through association. They knew Jesus. They wanted him to become famous so they would become famous as well. But we look at another group this morning, group number two, and point number two is exaltation or self-exaltation through works. We're talking about the Jewish religious leaders who are all about the law. And we got live by the law. Jump down to verse 19. We read, Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? And why do you seek to kill me? And he goes on and accuses them of all their hypocrisy. Of course, they try to discredit him, say, you've got a demon. But he goes through and just says, you guys are hypocrites. You guys who would puff yourselves up and promote yourselves by keeping the law. You don't keep the law. He says, you guys are a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. These guys prided themselves on keeping the law. You know, they would quickly point out where others failed in obeying the law. But you know what they never noticed? They never noticed their own. They never noticed. They never were able to look in a mirror and say, oh, that's me. But they said, no, I'm doing more than them. I'm striving harder than them. I'm keeping the law better than them. And I will be accepted by God because of these things. That was their pursuit. They would boast to others about their righteous deeds. They would go out on the corner and they would pray out publicly so everybody could see how spiritual they were. Jesus would say, do just the opposite. Go into your prayer closet in private and pray to your Father who's in heaven. You know, they greatly, greatly desired the praise and affirmation of others around them. And that praise and admiration of others, that's what fueled their arrogance. They were getting exactly what they were looking for. They would say, look at this righteous deed that I did. Look, I prayed. Look, I, I read the scriptures. Look, I gave money, I tithed, I followed the rules, and they would boast on and on and on. They were caught up in self-exaltation through works, the things they could do. Let me ask you this, just like I asked you with the other one. Do you think this type of pride could exist today? A laugh for many of us? Absolutely. You know, instead of name-dropping, they're works-dropping. So it's not about who I know or who I was around. It's about what I did. Oh, let me tell you about what I did. Look what I did. Look how spiritual I am. Look what better Christian I am than that person. Look how great I am. And I'm definitely much better than that person or that person. Workspace. And those of you that have been around church long enough, you hear it within church, within the walls of church. People that should be the redeemed of God, those who should be humbled by God, would be there saying, well, I did this and I did that and I served here and I gave this. and I... What? Self-righteous, self-exaltation, promoting ourselves. And you say, oh, well, I'm doomed because I've done that. Well, I've done it too. Have you ever patted yourself on the back? I have as well. But there is a remedy to this. And the remedy we'll see in Point number three this morning, that self-exaltation is remedied. We'll see when Jesus addresses the people at the feast in the temple. He was in the middle of this text this morning, starting in verse 14 through 18. Middle of the feast, he went up to the temple. He began teaching. The people marveled. And they said, how is it this man has learning when he's never studied? Look closely at his response. My teaching is not mine. What happened when they began to boast about him? What did he do with that attention? 
he immediately deflected it to the Father. And I will tell you this, even well-intentioned Christians, they'll come to you and they will tell you, hey, great job on this. I admire that you did that. That's great. We should stir up love and good works in each other. But once we take ownership of that and think, oh man, I'm something, woe is us. But instead, to give God glory, that all that I am, I am by the grace of God. I am nothing else but then what the grace of God has done in me and through me. Jesus said, this teaching is not mine. It's him who has sent me. And look at verse 17. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will. Stop there. Just with that half a sentence. What does that mean? What is he saying if anybody's will is to do God's will? Do you know naturally in our flesh whose will we're after? Whose will we want to promote? Whose will we want to pursue? Our own. That's just a natural response. It's chase after me. But now there's a purposeful transition. It's to pursue God. To pursue his will. There's a word for that. It's called repentance. It means to about face. To turn from going my way and turn to God's his way. Now, here's the reality. When repentance occurs, you don't know what all that entails. You don't know what God's whole will is. But what you know is, I'm going his way. And he'll lay that out before me as I follow him. We don't have all the answers as we turn. Jesus says, look, your will must be to do God's will. And if you have that, you'll have discernment. You'll know about the teaching. If it's from God, if it's from my own authority. And then he chastises them in verse 18. He says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. There it is again, pride. Those who want to elevate themselves, those who want to promote themselves, but he says, the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus is making this contrast. He's saying, look, you're either going to seek after the glory of God, or you're going to seek after your own glory. You're either going to be God-exalting, or you're going to be self-exalting. He said, but the remedy to self-exaltation is to turn to do God's will. To turn. Do you know how many steps that is? One. It's one turn to God. Away from me. Paul the Apostle would say, in our flesh, if we're trying to do stuff in our flesh, there's no way we can please God in our flesh. He says in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, he says, the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There must be the turning towards God's will. It must take place. Repentance and faith. But how does that happen? Does it happen that we just reason that, that Jesus' brothers would hear that and say, okay, great, I'll, I'll do it. There's humility in repentance. Humility is the opposite of pride. You know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble? But how does this happen? Church, it happens through the gospel. It happens through understanding the gospel. Could any one of us on our own stand before a holy and righteous God and say, I deserve eternal life? Well, I guess we could say that. It would be quite foolish to say that, but we could say that. But there's no, val no, no validation to it. There's no truth in it. To stand before a holy and righteous God who I have spent my life rebelling against, I would have to stand before and say, God, I am guilty. 
God, I've rebelled against you. And on my own merit, I have no hope. And church, that's where the gospel comes into this. And that's where the gospel brings humility to us. Because instead of me thinking, look, I just need to associate with somebody or I just need to do some works, I need to realize that I am nothing apart from Jesus Christ. I'm nothing. There's no amount of boasting that's going to change that. There's no amount of works on my behalf that are going to impress God. And say, wow, look what you did. But I am a sinner. And I'm in need of a Savior. And I am not the only one in this building in that position. But it's every single one of us. Every single one of us will come before Him with empty hands. We have nothing to offer. And all we have is the sin and shame of our past. And the Gospel says, God, because He loves us, would send his son Jesus to die in our place. You go, well, how is that good? How is dying good? Because that death would pay the penalty for our sins, my sin and your sin, past, present, and future. That the debt from my sin was paid by Jesus Christ. And it wouldn't end there, but then three days later he would rise from the grave for our justification, that we would be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. So when the Father looks upon us, he sees Christ. You ever think about some of the things you've done in your life? Some of the decisions you've made, some of the choices that you've chased after, some of the rebellion you participated in? To think now by the grace of God and through the gospel that he could look at Jesus in you? Blows me away. That in the gospel, I don't have to stand ashamed. I don't have to cower before Christ. But I could stand before him knowing that my sins have been forgiven. That I have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Glory. Hallelujah. That is good news. But knowing that. Knowing that there was nothing that I could do to earn or merit heaven. Knowing that it took the death of the Son of God. That he would die in my place should cause humility. It should humble me before him that my sin put Jesus on that cross. And out of God's great love for me and for you, he would do it willingly. Not because you're so great and mighty and puffed up in, in pride and everything else, but because we needed mercy. We needed the grace of God. And that is the remedy to pride. The remedy to pride in church, it's not a one-off thing that, you know what, today I'm just going to repent and turn to God's will and now I'm just going to float through life and never be prideful again. It is a moment-by-moment -moment application through the rest of our lives here on this earth that until this flesh turns into something that lasts forever before the presence of my Lord, that this flesh will continue to struggle. But the gospel is the remedy. The gospel needs to be applied over and over again that Christ died for me, that Christ was raised for me, that I was unworthy of it, yet because of the love of God, he has granted it to me. That is a humbling truth. And if we would just apply that to ourselves over and over and bathe ourselves in the gospel, you know, there are too many Christians who think the gospel is for unbelievers. Gospels for us every day is to be reminded of our position in Christ 
is to remind us about the goodness of God, is to remind us to be humble before our great and mighty God. So looking at this text this morning, John intentionally throws this chunk into chapter 7. After going through the miracles of Jesus, he throws in this to say, let's look at pride. Because pride is the root of unbelief. Pride needs to be addressed. Ongoing through our lives. Are we living to exalt self? Or are we living to exalt God? Think about that in every area of your life. Are you married here this morning? If you are a married person this morning, guess what? Marriage is hard. Had you only read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 before you got married, Paul says, look, if you want to marry, that's fine. You do not sin, but know this. If you get married, you will have worldly troubles. And I wish to spare you that. That's the Apostle That's what he said. By the way, come to premarital counseling. I'll read that to you. <laughs> Are you sure you want to do this? Know what the Apostle Paul is saying. But if you're here this morning and you're living for self-exaltation, you're going to be miserable in your marriage. I don't care how wonderful or how horrible your spouse is. If you're living for the glory of God, all will be okay with your soul. You will be able to overcome all the obstacles in life. Because your focus is on glorifying God. That I endure this, not because this person deserves it. I love this person, not because they deserve it, but because God does. That's the motive. Think about all the other situations. Are you employed? Do you have an employer that is, is difficult? Well, you treat them kindly. You don't retort back to them the way they treat you. You treat them kindly and lovely because... You do it for the glory of God. You're exalting Him, not yourself. This same application works in all areas of life. It's will I choose at this moment to exalt myself, or will I choose to exalt God? And I have to remember the gospel in all this, that I am a wretched sinner saved by the grace of God. I am who I am by the grace of God. And because of that, I live to exalt him and not me. That is the remedy. That is the purpose. That we see the brothers of Jesus, they want us to, to be elevated by their association with Jesus. We saw the, the Jewish leaders, they want to be elevated through their works. And yet, every single one of us at one day or another, we struggle with both of those patting ourselves on the back or wanting people to think better of us, and we need to apply the gospel. The gospel to our position to remember that we are who we are because of the grace of God, the goodness of our God, and the love of our God. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing truth that we have. That you are a good and gracious God. That Father, you have poured out your grace and your mercy. And yet in this chapter of, of John, chapter 7, we see a warning of, of pride being a root of unbelief to the point where Jesus' own brothers wouldn't believe, to the point where the Jewish leaders would puff themselves up on works. And yet in our own lives, we can see where these things have crept into our lives. And Father, we see that those who are willing, those whose will is to do your will, that that is the remedy. 
And Father, I pray in this place this morning that your spirit would draw us in repentance. That God, we would turn from self and we would turn to you, God. That God, not knowing all what that entails, that God, it would be one step of trust that we know we're to walk according to your way. God, we pray you would be glorified in our lives, that our lives would be to exalt you, and that, God, we would be reminded to apply the gospel to our lives moment by moment. To you be the glory now and forever in Jesus' name.